We started last week on the subject of creation, and hopefully this week we'll be able to wrap up that. Uh, we talked about the theory known as theistic evolution, and uh, how really it is uh, incompatible with Scripture's account of creation. Over and over again in Genesis 1, uh, God says that he created animals and humans and even plants to reproduce each one according to his own kind. And so this idea of uh, one type of animal evolving into another type and eventually human is simply contrary to what God has told us about how he created the world. Uh, we're going to get into a couple more views of Genesis 1 to cover this morning. And uh, before we get into the age of the earth, let's talk about the day-age theory. Uh, this is the attempt by some to say that the earth was not formed in six literal days, but that uh, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and so this could be a long amount of time that God is just referring to as a day. And so, in other words, it would be a figure of speech or poetic, not to be taken literally. Okay, um, so let's think about this. First of all, what does that help? Let's say each day is a million years. Uh, what would that actually change? Uh, most people who are holding to a day-age theory are trying, again, to fit Darwinian evolution into Genesis. And so that's how they're making up the time. Um, and as you already said last week, you really can't do that because God formed each animal. Uh, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. God created each, each kind to produce after its own kind. And so even if there were these large periods of time within each day, uh, that really doesn't help you reconcile with evolution. Uh, also, uh, another issue with that idea of the day-age theory and, and sort of mixing naturalism with uh, Christianity, the plants are created before the sun in Genesis 1. Okay, so you're telling me for millions of years plants were growing without sunlight. <laughs> um, th there's all sorts of problems with the day-age theory. First of all, there's, there's also simply no indication anywhere in Scripture to suggest that these were anything but 24-hour days. Uh, you've even got the phrase throughout Genesis 1, the evening and the morning after each day. And so uh, it seems pretty clear that he is implying, yes, these are literal 24-hour days. Uh, just as a side note there, th that is a pretty good test for an interpretation of Scripture, is uh, the plain reading of the text. Yes, there are some times in which we can gain insight by digging into original languages, looking closely at the grammar or something, but rarely... Well, you see something there that radically changes a simple reading of the text. And so if you read Genesis 1 and say, you know, this looks like six days to me, uh, that kind of plain sense reading would need a lot of counter evidence to overturn it. And uh, I don't think we have that evidence. So the day-age theory uh, really is based on a theistic evolution viewpoint, not anything in Genesis. Um, a, a text to consider on this, Exodus 20, this is where God is giving the Ten Commandments. And he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, your, so your sojourner, which is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy again. Um, a plain sense reading of that would be he's talking about seven, uh, six, or in this case, seven literal days. Uh, we rest one day out of seven because God made the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Um, I don't know how you can fit millions of years in that. Okay, so theistic evolution, no. Uh, Day-age theory, pretty strong, no. 
Let's talk about the literary framework view. Uh, according to this perspective, Genesis 1 is not intended to be taken as a chronological sequence of events, but as a topical or literary framework. Uh, they would point out that days 1 through 3 are described as the forming days of the earth. Uh, days 4 and 6 describe the corresponding filling days. Okay, so if you just look at that chart, you have on day 1 the categories of light and dark are created. On day 4, these are filled with sun, moon, and stars. Day 2, the sky and the waters are formed. Day 5, they're filled with fish and birds. Isn't that interesting, the corresponding of sky and water and then fish and birds? You ever wondered, why are those separated from land animals? Um, day 3, you've got the land, the plants formed. Day 6, the land is filled with animals and humans. So it is interesting, uh, the symmetry uh, that is there in the six days. And I, I actually think that this literary framework view is a plausible view of Genesis 1. It's not my view, but I do think it has some merit. Uh, basically, what's being said is that we're looking at this all wrong. <laughs> Genesis 1 isn't a sequential retelling of events, but rather a poetic description of how God created all things and filled it with life. And so they would argue that we're trying to read um, poetry as a science textbook, when that wasn't what God intended by it. Um, and I think that's a helpful thought and something we should keep in mind. That yes, there's clearly an ordering in the in the literary structure of Genesis one. Um, there's the repetition, there's the symmetry of it, and uh, and so you know maybe we are trying to read into uh, some of those details, scientific observations that really were not intended. Again, that's not necessarily my view, but I do think it's one that should be considered. Okay. Um, so those are, are, are just a few ways that Genesis 1 has been read differently by different Christians. Let's continue now with the how of creation, what we can say for certain about how God created all things. Uh, and first of all, we're going to say God created all things ex nihilo, which is just a fancy Latin term for out of nothing. Uh, God created the universe out of nothing. He called it into existence. Uh, Romans 4, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God. Uh, the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, so it's not merely that God took materials and formed them. Rather, he created out of nothing. Uh, he called into existence these things which did not exist. This is the main difference between, you know, even in human terms when we speak about someone being creative. I understand what we mean by that, but none of us are creative in the way that God is. Uh, we take things that exist, and we form them, and we come up with a new idea or whatever. And uh, But we can't take nothing and make something from it. That is a, a distinct feature of God's uh, creative power. Now, again, what we're talking about here is prior to the six days in Genesis. As I said last week, the six days should be called the six days of formation, because God came to an earth that was covered in water, and in six days, he formed it and made it able to sustain life, and then he filled it with plants, animals, and humans. But the earth was already there. Uh, the water was already there. He didn't create humans or animals out of nothing. He formed them out of the dirt that was on the earth. Okay, And so what we're talking about in terms of God creating out of nothing is prior to that. You know, Where did the earth come from? Where did those waters that were covering the earth come from? Well, God created that out of nothing. That's Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he came and formed the earth and filled it with life in those six days of what we call creation. 
Uh, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, so the universe itself was created out of nothing but the spoken word of God. He called into existence that which did not exist. And so again, the six days of creation technically then are really the six days of renovation, uh, when God made the earth and the heavens inhabitable. Uh, but all that we see around us was ultimately made out of nothing uh, but God's decree. He created ex nihilo. Second, uh, creation is a triune act. And if you remember from last week, as we read through Genesis 1, there were hints of this there. Uh, for example, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So you see the Spirit involved in creation there in verse 2. And uh, we'll look at some other texts in a minute that show the Father and the Son's role in creation as well. But in Genesis 1.26, uh, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so you see those plural pronouns uh, three times in that verse, and then also in some other places in Genesis where you clearly have the triune God communicating about what he's about to do. Um, and so let us make man in our image. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so uh, the us and the our of verse 26 is uh, clarified in verse 27. That is speaking of God, right? Because he says, let us make man in our image. Then it says in the image of God. Man was created. So the hour is God. It's the triune God. Um, so creation involved all three members of the Trinity. We see the Father's role in Malachi 2.10. Uh, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Uh, you see this, the Spirit's role in Genesis 1-2, but also in Job 33-4. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And then in the New Testament, repeatedly, we're told of Jesus' involvement in creation as well. For example, John 1 Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And even those first three words of John's Gospel kind of signal us back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. Uh, John clearly has in mind here that account in Genesis 1. Uh, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So through Christ. Uh, without him was not anything made that was made. And so God made all things through Christ. Again in verse 10, he was in the world. The world was made through him yet the world did not know him. And so basically pointing out the irony of the fact that the creator of the world became a human, lived among us, um, and yet we did not recognize him as such. Uh, Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus again, Paul writes, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then one more text, Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of, of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so, again, you see in Hebrews... In Colossians, in John, uh, God the Father created through the Son. And so we can say God the Father created all things that exist through the Son by the Spirit. All three members of the Trinity uh, were involved in creation. Uh, God the Father seems to be the originator, God the Son the mediator, and God the Spirit the executor. 
Uh, maybe think of it like a cons uh, constructing a building. You know, you have the architect who draws up the plans for it. You have the general contractor who kind of oversees it. And then you have the construction tr crew that's actually doing the building. And so each person there plays a role in the building of the structure. And so while we don't have um, much details about how this all worked, creation clearly was a triune act involving all three members of the Trinity. Next, just briefly, God created by his word. Uh, this is clear, of course, in Genesis 1, where that repeated cycle is God said, followed by, and it was so. Right? God created all things by speaking them into existence, and then in Genesis, those six days, he commanded them to be formed in certain ways. Um, Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. And so God created by his word. Um, now, for the rest, let's see here. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into for a bit here <clears throat> the age of the universe. How old is the universe? Um, now, within Christianity, there are a few different viewpoints on this. You have the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists. Um, the young earth guys would say the universe is 6,000 years old, maybe as much as 10,000 years old. There's a bit of a range there. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, the old earth guys would say millions or even billions of years old. So this is quite a difference. Um, between the young earth and old earth creationists. Both sides are agreeing God created the world. That, that's not the dispute here within Christianity, at least. But uh, how old is the universe? There's quite a difference of opinion. Now, the 6,000-year number came from a guy named James Usher. He lived about 400 years ago. Um, and he taught that the Bible, he basically claimed the Bible says creation took place in the year 4004 BC. Okay, that was his claim, which is roughly 6,000 years ago from now. Uh, now, he got this date by tracing the timeline of the Bible backwards. So if you read the genealogies, it'll say so-and-so lived so many years. He had a son at this age, you know. And so he just took that mathematical equation and counted backwards. Um, and so if, if you read in Genesis, you can see how you could do this. How, it, you know, the genealogies will say this person was this old when he gave birth to this son. And this birth person was this old when he gave birth to this son. And so you can trace the passing of time uh, by calculating those genealogies. And so he came up with the date 4004 BC, roughly 6,000 years ago. That's where that idea comes from. Now, there is a problem with that because genealogies do have gaps at times. Uh, for example, if you've ever lined up the genealogy in Matthew 1, this was scandalous for me in college when I found this out. Uh, if you line up the genealogy in Matthew 1 with the Old Testament genealogies, it's not the same. Uh, there are generations skipped in the genealogy. I remember in one case in Matthew 1, there's three in a row, three names that are just not in the list. Um, there's different theories as to why that's the case, but uh, it really is not uncommon in genealogies where it might say this person begat this person, but it's actually not a direct line. He may be the father or he may be his grandfather. Um, and so you do have generations skipped in the genealogies. This is why some young earth creationists will say, we really can't be sure about the 6,000, you know, 6,000 years exactly or anything like that. It's probably between 6,000 and 10,000 years old. So accounting for possible gaps in the genealogies, uh, but still, uh, you know, certainly not millions of years old, just looking at the genealogies. Okay, so you've got the young earth guys, they're looking at scripture and they're saying Genesis 1 took place uh, with thousands of years ago, according to the Bible. You really can't get millions of years uh, out of those genealogies or, or any of the dating in scripture. The old earth creationists are looking at science, and they're seeing the evidence 
of an old universe. Okay, so you know the young Earth guys, they're counting genealogies. The old Earth guys are counting tree lines and carbon dating and other ways of dating and saying, hey, this fossil here is 4 million years old. Um, and so the universe has to be older than 10,000 years. Or they'll look at uh, the distance of stars from the Earth, and they'll calculate based upon the distance uh, and the speed of light, and they'll say, well, if this, if this star was created only 10,000 years ago, we wouldn't be able to see it yet because uh, it's you know 5 billion light years away from us. And so the universe has to be at least that old. Okay, so uh, these are interesting arguments to have. How do we solve this dilemma? First of all, we need to acknowledge that the Bible does not give us a clear answer to the question of the age of the universe. That is not a question that Scripture seems very keen on answering. It's one that a lot of us are curious about, but uh, God doesn't seem to care too much to give us that information. He doesn't give us a date. Uh, there's not a clear, straightforward answer. There are indications that the account of Genesis 1 took place between, again, six and 10,000 years ago. There are certainly indications that that is the case. But we cannot be precise. Uh, certainly, we can't be as precise as Usher and say that it was October 23rd, 4004. This is actually what he said. Uh, he actually, I think, had a time during the day. It was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon or something. And I don't know where you get that from in, in, uh, in Genesis, but anyways... So, again, these are indications, there are indications uh, that the six days of Genesis 1 took place likely less than 10,000 years ago. As far as the carbon dating and fossils and all of that is concerned, a couple of things to point out. First of all, these methods uh, have been proven to be unreliable measures of dating in the past. Now, there have been improvements made, okay, so maybe they fixed all the bugs, I don't know. Uh, but there have certainly been errors made in things like carbon dating in the past, where they looked at a tree and it carbon dated to 4,000 years old, but we knew it was only 30 years old or something. You know, there, there were cases like that where the carbon dating was way off. Um, again, have they fixed all of that? I have no idea. I'm not a scientist, but I just will point out we can't take dating from science and say, oh, that's 100% precise all the time because it's just not. Uh, but let's say for sake of argument that they did discover some tree that appears to be a million years old. Okay, and let's say they're doing all the calculations perfectly. How could that be possible if the earth was created only 10,000 years ago? Well, we need to remind ourselves that God formed the earth with the appearance of age, uh, meaning when God created Adam and Eve, he did not create two babies. Okay, so they, he created adults. <laughs> so, in other words, um, Adam and Eve, when they were technically three days old, okay, they might have looked like they were 30 years old. You understand what I'm saying there? Like the, They looked like they were older than they actually were. They were created last week, and yet they look like full-grown adults. And so the same thing would be true of animals and plants. Uh, God didn't just put seeds in the earth and wait for them to grow into trees, right? Uh, during creation, God created trees with fruit already on them. So any, a scientist looking at the tree would have said, oh, this is this, this many years old. Well, actually, it was two days old. Uh, so God created with the appearance of maturity. Uh, now that works for the fossils, that works for the trees, but what about the speed of light argument? Because that's a, a bit of a different take. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that really works for the stars. It does, it, it takes however millions of, or billions of years for light to hit Earth from the stars. So how can we say that they are only a few thousand years old? Well, there's a few ways to answer that question. You could say that, well, maybe the scientific measuring of the distance of the stars or of the speed of light is off. Again, I don't know enough about that to make such a claim. But assuming that they are correct... Uh, there are still a few ways to reconcile this with Genesis 1. First would be what we talked about a minute ago, the day-age theory. I already said I don't buy that. I don't see how you can come to that conclusion reading Scripture. But 
if they're right about that, that would explain how the stars could be created um, and then also the light made visible within that one day or age, longer period of time. Okay, so you could say, you could also say that God just somehow supernaturally sped up the light and got it to earth instantly so that he created it and we saw it and he somehow bypassed the speed of light problem. Uh, you could also answer the dilemma by appealing to some form of the gap theory. And this one I, I find to be compelling. Um, Genesis 1.1, God made the heavens and the earth. And then later, on the fourth day of creation, God says, let the stars appear in the heavens. And as we've already pointed out, um, when, when the six days of creation take place, there's already an earth there. So God had already spoken things into existence. He comes on day one and starts to form what he had already previously created. Okay, So you could say the stars were actually created in Genesis 1-1. Right? So prior to day four, the stars were already there. And when God said on day four, let there be lights in the heavens, that all of a sudden the stars became visible from earth. So in other words, that view would be saying that it wasn't that God actually formed the stars on day four, but that they were formed previously and that they became visible to earth on day four. You understand that? So that is a, a, I think that that is a reasonable reading of Genesis 1. I'm not saying everybody has to believe that, but I think you can get there. Um, saying that it, it really is not, uh, you know, when God says, you know, let the stars appear in the sky, that they had already been created and the light was then visible. So that's another way around the problem. You could also <clears throat> just take the framework view and say it's all poetry and so it's not meant to be taken literally. Uh, I mentioned earlier that would solve the speed of light issue as well, uh, basically saying that we're asking questions that Genesis was not written to answer. So those are some different ways that people have answered the question about uh, the speed of light, fossils, tree lines, things like that. Why does the universe look so old? Uh, those would be some possible answers for that. I have a brief video for us to watch uh, from R.C. Sproul uh, answering his question on the age of the universe that I thought was very helpful. Looking at the age of the universe, a question uh, comes up as far as young Earth versus old Earth. So, so one question is, is that a, is that a first order issue? Is that an intramural uh, discussion? Um, and, then, and then if we could just go down uh, the panel here and just briefly state that how you approach that question as far as age of the universe. RC, is it an intramural discussion? Uh, not for some people. For some people, it's it's an all-or-nothing issue. Um, when people ask me how old the Earth is, I tell them I don't know, because I don't. On the, and I'll tell you why I don't. In the first place, is the Bible does not give us a date of creation. Now, it gives us hints and inclinations that would indicate in many cases, a young earth. And at the, at the same time, you get all this expanding universe and all this astronomical dating and triangulation and all that stuff coming from outside the church. That makes me wonder, and I'll tell you why. I believe firmly that all of truth is God's truth, and I believe that God has not only given revelation in sacred scripture, but also in the sacred scripture itself tells us that God reveals himself in nature, which we call natural revelation. And I once asked a seminary class of mine that was a conservative group, I said, how many of you believe that the God's revelation 
in Scripture is infallible. And they all raised their hand. I said, well, how many of you believe that God's revelation in nature is infallible? And nobody raised their hand. It's the same God who's giving the revelation. But what they were getting at was they were saying not every scientific theory is compatible with the Word of God. And that's true. But historically, the church's understanding of special revelation or the Bible has been corrected by students of natural revelation with the Copernican Revolution. Both Calvin and Luther rejected Copernicus as a heretic in the 16th century. I don't know anybody in Orthodox Christianity today who's pleading for geocentricity. Do you? Do you know anybody? In that case, the church had to Yeah, but the church has said, look, we misinterpreted the teaching of the Bible with respect to the solar system. And thank you, uh, scientists, for correcting our misunderstanding. And so I think that we can learn from uh, non-believing scientists who are studying natural revelation. They may get a, a better sense of the truth from their study of natural revelation than I get from ignoring natural revelation. So I have a high view of natural revelation, as I'm saying. However, if something can be shown to be definitively taught in the Bible without question, and somebody gives me a theory from natural that they think is based on natural revelation that contradicts the Word of God, I'm going to stand with the Word of God a hundred times out of a hundred. But again, I have to repeat, I could have been a mistaken interpreter of the Word of God. But again, I don't, I don't have to face that problem because I believe that both spheres are God's spheres of revelation, and that truth has to be compatible. So if they seem to be in conflict, and if they are in conflict, if a theory of science, natural science, is in conflict with a theological theory and contradicts it, here's what I know for sure. Somebody's wrong. And I don't leap to the conclusion that it has to be the scientist. It may be the theologian. But nor do I leap to the conclusion that it has to be the theologian. It can well be the scientist, because we've got fallible human beings interpreting uh, infallible natural revelation and fallible human beings interpreting uh, infallible special revelation. Now, having said that, I don't know. That's a long way to say I don't know how old the earth is, but I'd like to hear what Stephen says about that. <laughs> Okay, so there's <clears throat> a lot there that I think is very helpful uh, in this discussion of the age of the universe. First of all, <clears throat> is the recognition that scientists are fallible humans, right? They can and do make mistakes. Uh, they are wrong about some of their conclusions. Also, we need to recognize that those of us who study and teach the Bible are fallible human beings. We can and do make mistakes. We are wrong about some of our interpretations of Scripture. And so while uh, Usher is reading the Bible and saying the earth is 6,000 years old, and the scientists are saying, well, this, this proves that the earth is 4 billion years old, somebody is misinterpreting the information. It may be that the scientist is way off base in his uh, calculations, or it may be that Usher is misunderstanding something in Scripture and drawing wrong conclusions from it. 
And so I think it's a helpful point to consider that in both spheres, you have uh, human beings that are capable of misinterpreting information, whether it be scripture or whether it, whether it be scientific observation. Uh, Sproul brings up there the issue of geocentricity as an example of this. Uh, Christians condemned Copernicus as a heretic because he claimed that the sun was stationary and that it was the center of the universe and the earth was moving around it. Christians said, no way. Uh, the Bible says the sun rises in the east and God made the, the sun stand still. And so clearly, uh, Scripture teaches, they would say, that the sun moves and the earth is still. Well, guess what? The scientists were right. Uh, the Bible teachers, in that case, were wrong. <laughs> and we now look at those passages of Scripture that they appealed to and we understand that they were trying to take figures of speech like the sun rising in the east as a statement of scientific fact uh, when that was not God's intention at all. And uh, we still talk like this today, of course. We still say, wow, the sun is going down really early now with the time change. Okay, well, that doesn't mean that we actually think the sun is what's moving. We understand uh, that technically speaking, the earth is moving and it makes it appear like the sun is going down. Um, and so sometimes we take statements, figures of speech in Scripture uh, more literally than they were intended. Uh, here, here, sorry, what's up? Observational language. Oh, yeah, yeah, saying it appears like the sun is going down from our perspective. Uh, here's a quotation of Luther um, condemning Copernicus in 1539. Okay, and this is just ironic to read now because, again, all of us understand that Copernicus was right. Uh, Luther says, There was mention of a certain new astrologer who wanted to prove that the earth moves and not the sky, the sun, and the moon. Even in these things that are thrown into disorder, I believe the Holy Scriptures. For Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. Okay, so Luther is basically saying there, well, this, this crazy scientist has this theory about the sun's being still and the earth moving. Well, I believe the Bible. And so, and, and the Bible teaches otherwise. Well, again, they were wrong. And so you can see, uh, you can see where they're getting that argument. It's not unreasonable. He's looking at scripture and saying, well, God commanded the sun to stand still, not the earth to stop moving. That seems like an, you know, you can understand where he's getting his, his uh, argument there. <clears throat> but uh, we need to be aware that this type of error in interpreting Scripture may be true in our own thinking as well. This is one reason that I'm very open to things like the literary framework of Genesis 1, which says this isn't science. Uh, stop trying to figure out the age of the universe. Just accept that God made it all. He doesn't give us all the details about how and when. I think that's Again, uh, something we ought to consider. Uh, Keith Matheson, in his book, A Reformed Approach to Science and Scripture, says, If a scientific theory or hypothesis contradicts an actual teaching of Scripture, that scientific theory or hypothesis is necessarily wrong. Scripture teaches, for example, that God is the creator of heaven and earth and all that is within them. Any scientific theory that ascribes the existence of all things to purely materialistic forces is therefore wrong. Okay, so to summarize all of that then, uh, Sproul is saying that science and Scripture do not ultimately conflict. Science can overturn something, uh, I'm sorry, science cannot overturn something that is actually taught in Scripture. Also, Scripture cannot overturn a scientific fact. But both science and Scripture have to be interpreted and understood properly. Uh, and so whenever there appears to be a contradiction between the two, Somebody is misinterpreting either the science or scripture at that point. Uh, one final quote on, on this, again from Keith Masson's book. 
What then should Christians do when they encounter a scientific theory that appears to conflict with Scripture? First, we can relax and do not be afraid that the scientific theory in question is going to disprove Christianity. God is the source of all truth, and ultimately there will be no real conflict between what God reveals in Scripture and what is true about His created works. Second, we can remember that God is the ultimate authority, so if there is a real conflict between the scientific theory in question and the actual teaching of Scripture, the scientific theory is wrong. Third, we can recognize that our goal is to discover the truth in order that we might not bear false testimony regarding God or His created works. In order to do so, we must recognize that the perceived conflict may be due to a misinterpretation of creation, a misinterpretation of Scripture, or a misinterpretation of both. This means we need to do a thorough examination of both the scientific theory and the biblical exegesis to discover the source of the conflict. We must make sure we are dealing with the actual teaching of Scripture as opposed to a mistaken interpretation of Scripture. And we must examine the evidence for the scientific theory in question to discover whether we are dealing with something that is true about God's creation or something that is merely speculation. All of this hard work takes time, and that means we must not jump to hasty conclusions. All right, we are running out of time here, so I'm going to have to skip through a few things. I would point out here um, some of our questions about creation, age of the universe, those type of things are just not going to be answered. Uh, I think of Job 38 and 39 when, when God appears to Job in the world and says, were you there when I created all things? Do you know how this all works? You know, explain to me how, how whatever. He, he asks him all these questions. Uh, sometimes we get that same attitude as if we could answer God's questions to Job, when the whole point is, no, we weren't there, we don't know. Uh, and so we ought to allow for some, uh, some unanswered questions there. Oh, let's see here. We're going to skip. Hmm. Do I want to skip that? Yeah, let's skip. Uh, I'll just give this to you briefly. Why the, the why of creation? Why did God create the, the universe? Uh, this, the answer that Scripture gives is that God created all things <clears throat> for His glory. Isaiah 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so God created all things for his glory. Psalm 19 talks about how creation declares, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so all of creation exists for the glory and pleasure of God. And this, of course, includes us as humans, as a part of God's good creation, uh, which is why we say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you want to deep dive on that subject, uh, I'll just recommend quickly Jonathan Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World. Uh, it's, it's Edwards, so it's, it's uh, thick reading, but very good stuff there. If you want a modern iteration of it, John Piper wrote a book, uh, God's Passion for His Own Glory, which expands on Edwards' premise. I've not read Piper's book, um, but I've heard him talk about it, so I know what it's uh, pertaining to. It's trying to answer the question, basically, does this make God a narcissist? Right? Why is it okay for God to seek his own glory? Uh, that's the type of thing that, that Piper's answering in that book. Okay, uh, let's wrap up here with a few concluding thoughts. Why does it matter that God created everything? Why would we take the time to study the subject? Why is it in our doctrinal statement? Uh, here are a few reasons that a right understanding of the doctrine of creation is significant for us today. And uh, these are in no particular order. These are just a few things that came to my mind uh, when I asked myself this question. Number one, if God created all things, then it follows that he has ultimate authority to rule over all things. In other words, denying creation is denying God's sovereignty to do as he wills 
with all that he has made. Uh, this was the point of the end of the book of Job, right? When, when God talks about how he created everything, he made it all, he knows how it all works, and so therefore he has the right to run the universe as he pleases, and he doesn't owe us explanations for all that he does. Uh, we, you know, he doesn't have to, has to ju justify himself to us because he's the one who created it all to begin with. Uh, like Paul says in Romans 9, right? The, uh, the potter can do what he will with the, the clay pots that he's making, and it would be foolish for a pot to say back to the, the person making it, why are you making me like this? Uh, and that's Paul's argument to basically say, God created us, God created the whole universe, and so he has the right to rule as he wills. Number two, creation gives worth to all that exists. Uh, if naturalism and Darwinian evolution were true, then we are all accidents. Our very existence was brought about by mere chance. And the same is true of everything else we see around us. But if God created everything, then it has intrinsic value. Uh, this is why we ought to care for the things that God has created, by the way. Some, people, uh, some Christians have this mindset of, you know, who cares about taking care of, of the planet because God's going to burn it all anyway. Well, first of all, I would say you're wrong about end time stuff. But secondly, <laughs> even if that were true, okay, God made our planet, everything on it, and he gave us as humans instructions to care for it. Uh, this is what he says to Adam and Eve. Have dominion over these things, work the fields, take care of the planet that I'm entrusting to you. This is part of our responsibility as image bearers of God. And along the same lines, of course, the fact that God created us humans, that we're not um, evolutionary accidents, means that he has a purpose for us. We are not just a cosmic accident. Number three, if God created all things, then we can learn more about him by looking at what he's created. Okay, we can see how ordered and complex God is, how wise he must be to have made a world that functions so intricately. Uh, we have to acknowledge, of course, that the world is cursed by the fall, and so not everything functions properly as God originally made it to. Uh, but it is still true that nature reveals things about God, as Scripture, of course, teaches. Uh, Psalm 19, we just read, uh, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, we can know things about God, His, his nature, His power, uh, by looking at creation. Revelation 4, we give glory and honor and praise to God because He made all things. And so by, by observing God's handiwork in nature, as Christians, we don't just see the beauty of a sunset or the genius of the water cycle, but we see beyond that to a brilliant and beautiful God who made it all. Uh, by the way, this is the point of the book by Steve DeWitt I recommended uh, last week, Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything, uh, basically trying to train us to look around us at creation and, uh, and see beyond just what's in front of us to the God who made it. Number four, uh, creation destroys the foundation of racism in a way that Darwinian evolution cannot. I bet you didn't see that one coming. Uh, in the past, some evolutionists theorized that certain races were superior to others because the idea was that some races were closer to the apes that we came from and others were further along in the evolutionary process and thus were higher forms of life. Uh, this was one of the arguments used to defend slavery. As Christians, we reject this and say, no, God created the first two humans. All of us are descended from them. And so thus we are all of equal value and we are all image bearers of God. Uh, number five, the fact that God created all things means that he knows best how it should all function. Uh, if you buy something, it's always a good idea to use it as recommended by the owner's manual. Okay, because the people who made it, designed whatever it is, a tool, a car, whatever, 
They designed it to be used in certain ways. And if you use it in a way that's not directed, it's not going to work properly. In the same way, God created the world, he created us as humans, and we would be foolish to disregard his instructions for, uh, for us and how we live. He knows best how our world and our societies function. And when a culture accepts God's laws, they flourish. Uh, just as an example of this, think about the Bible's teaching on gender. Uh, God made male and female. He made us to be different, to uh, fulfill different roles that complement one another. He made men and women to carry out these complementary roles in relationships. And God's design from the beginning was that a man and a woman would raise children together. And when we as a society reject God's design, as we see all around us today, uh, the consequences are disastrous. And so we should follow God's instruction because we are a part of his creation. He knows best how the world that he made works. Uh, let's see, number six, creation matters because it is clearly taught in Scripture. If, the, if creation is not true, then the Bible is not true. It's that simple. And so we ought to affirm the doctrine of creation simply because the uh, Scripture clearly teaches it. 